welcome everyone to the 39th episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Cozell here with Nick Tartaglia in cold Montreal. Nick, how are you, man? I'm good. Yourself, bro? I'm good. A little freezing, though. Yeah. A little but bit. We have some sun. We have some sun today, so it's good. We, we do have some sun, and um, I think what we're going to talk about today is really interesting. We're going to continue the precious metals binge that we've been talking about the last few episodes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's obvious, a, obviously, it's a, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Obviously, the attention is focused around Bitcoin right now, so we want to we want to drive attention to something that uh, yeah. is going to play off very well long term here. Exactly, it's and- it's it's heavily correlated to macro, so in economics and you know social development heavily impacts the macro world and millennials being the future generation taking over the econo- the economy, the political realm, and the social realm. Understanding the macro drivers that are that are directing those dynamics forward heavily correlates also to precious metals and why they tend to be more correlated to long-term, long-term fundamentals rather than short-term fundamentals. And that's, you know, it, it's, it's an important conversation to be had because too many people are too fixated on the short-term. And if you're too fixated on the short-term, you deviate from fundamentals of, on the long-term and it could cause long-term consequences. So I was actually talking to a broker and one of the things that he told me, and I think most people can, can resonate with this is our generation hasn't lived through a down market yet. And that's when stuff really, really starts, you know, the fundamentals really drive it. So without further ado, um, we've got a very special guest here uh, with us to talk about this topic and other macro and micro themes. Um, And prior to starting uh, Miles Franklin, precious metals investment in 1989, and uh, this gentleman became a licensed financial planner, specializing in Swiss franc investments, and alternative investments. At the company, they eclipsed about $5 billion in sales. And, and this gentleman has developed an operation that maintains trust, collaboration, ethical behavior, superior customer service, and satisfaction to better serve all their clients. And he's also responsible for overseeing the firm's operation and business functions, including strategy and planning, account management, finance, as well as new business and business development. We are so pleased to have him here today. He's the president and owner of, of Miles Franklin Precious Metals Investment. Welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Andy Sheckman. Thanks for having me, fellas. Uh, appreciate being here. Looking forward to chatting. So, Andy, to start off, because something that lacks a lot with our generation, especially with them lacking the ability to contextualize history in order to really understand the macro theme of the world is, can you just talk a little bit about yourself in the history of your development in the financial space, how you got into investing and just how you developed yourself within that career? Well, sure. Uh, we, uh, my company, uh, Miles Franklin started in 1989. Um, we uh, kind of started on a wing and a prayer. Uh, my father's middle name is Miles and his best friend who, who lent us at the time uh, $60,000 to start a company on top of my parents selling their life insurance policies. Um, his middle name was Franklin. And, uh, you know, coming from nothing in a small one room office on a, on a wing and a prayer renting mailing lists that came with labels. This was before the internet, before you guys were born. And, uh, Probably. And um, we're 27. We're 27. There you go. So yeah. before you were born, uh, you know, there was no internet. Cell phones were about the size of a shoe. No one carried them. Everything was done by by mailing, direct mail and, and, and phone calls. I remember my dad coming back from Japan saying, I, I bought us this really neat thing. It's called a fax machine. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it was different. It was different back then. And um, 
but you know, here we are 31 years later through uh, hard work, a little bit of luck, strong fingertips, able to hang on, uh, a belief in our conviction. Uh, and, and here we are 31 years later. When I started, uh, I was 19. And, you know, you asked me kind of the way that I look at things or the way that it was formulated or, or the way that I got into all of this. It, it all started with one rule that my father said I'd have to follow and uh, probably the best piece of advice he ever gave me. I like to tell people that my dad never gave me anything but an opportunity. Um, and really no one gave him anything but an opportunity either. And uh, the one rule he said to me, which was very insightful, which I think people should think about um, because it's, it's been the greatest driver to my wealth creation is that, um, that I'll buy something every two weeks or he'll fire me. I was 19 at the time. I said, if that's the only rule, I can deal with it. Uh, so here we are 31 years later. I own the company. I'm the president of the company. He's still my partner, I guess you could say, but I won't fire him any longer. He won't fire me any longer, rather. But I've honored my word to him. And for 31 years, every two weeks, I've bought something. Um, and to me, which kind of underscores or, or um, I guess, underlines the way that I look at gold and silver, it, it's built wealth to me. Gold and silver are not an investment, it's wealth. Uh, has been for 6,000 years. Yeah. And uh, whether you're talking emperors or kings or queens or pharaohs or whoever, none of them called their gold dealer to buy metals. They owned it as a form of immutable wealth to pass on to their future generations. So we had come from very humble beginnings um, with a belief in gold and silver as, as being wealth, um, as being outside the system. Um, you know, you, you look at a at a, at a what's happening in this country and we see trillions of dollars being thrown around like it's no big deal but I think it's important to realize that a trillion seconds ago was 31,688 years ago so as we see a destruction of currencies that we measure our wealth by I've always chosen to look at wealth a little bit differently in terms of ounces number of ounces and in terms of historical perspective when you realize Inherently, every single paper currency that has ever been is meant to die. It always regresses to its, its value, uh, that of paper being nothing. And um, that's not the case with gold and silver. One of the few assets in the world that, you know, not only has been wealth forever, but in the year 3000, hopefully when my great, great, great grandchildren are using some of the coins that great, great, great grandfather Andy passed down, Long after the, the, the bills in my wallet are hanging in the Smithsonian as a form of what was money, uh, I think it will still be wealth. And so that's how I'd like to start this discussion or the framework is that, look, yeah, I sell precious metals, but uh, I believe in it to the point where I've accumulated myself literally every two weeks for 31 years without fail, never missed a two-week period. And it has been the single biggest factor in, in my wealth creation, virtually everything I've ever bought still have so um that's that's kind of what formulated my my uh, affinity uh, for precious metals and, and my love for them so okay i want to i want to tie something in some variables you just said so i want to tie into 31 years and japan 
and the fact that it's a it's a demonstration of kind of what we're developing ourselves in North America is yeah. obviously as we know 31 years ago Japan had a stock market bubble with their real estate assets in 31 years that market hasn't gone back there and in 1999 the mar- the really uh, the interest rates went to zero also and they have never gone back up since then and North America is exactly in the same scenario so you having said Japan 31 years and where we are now like where's your hat like where's oh, your head at looking all that together that's a great comment and first of all i remember the first conference i went to um right around 1990 and um back then as you mentioned um the japanese nikkei was close to 40,000 the dow jones was 2100 um the japanese owned pebble beach golf course in fact i played there a couple years ago and there's a plaque on one of the tee boxes that said this land was sold for you know pittance uh, to the, the Japanese who then sold it back, but they owned Rockefeller Center in New York City. They owned casinos. They owned ski resorts in Colorado. They made anything with an engine or an electronic component far better than anyone else in the world did. By and large, people thought they were taking over the world. Um, and their demographic is very much like ours, only older. We're, we are running down that same path. Uh, but here we are, as you mentioned, since 1990, when I started in this industry, I've watched the Nikkei go from 40,000 to roughly a third of that. It's climbed back a little bit, but as you mentioned, with interest rates at or near zero the whole time, they couldn't even get people back in, which is an important lesson to be learned. You, you burn your ass bad enough. The whole psyche of, of investing is something that takes a long time to come back. If you see a market that collapses to that degree, especially in an aging demographic, they won't come back no matter how you incentivize them, even with zero interest rates. And at the same time, I watched the, the Dow Jones, the first guy that the conference I went to, the guy said, there's a guy on the stage said the Dow will go to 10,000. He was truly laughed off the stage. People laughed and snickered and he slumped off and, you know, markets go higher than anyone ever think possible to the upside, and they will conversely fall further to the downside than anyone thinks possible. I would say in terms of absolutes, that's about the only absolute I can give you in 31 years is that the market dynamics will always outpace what people think either to the up or to the down based upon emotion. And um, when you throw in tremendous amount of manipulation of interest rates and of markets and of currencies, it only adds to the veracity uh, uh, of how this ultimately plays out. It will, it will um, I think, ultimately uh, completely exacerbate the move when it finally makes its, its, its self-evident. Do you think that the pension issue we're having here is kind of similar to the one in Japan? Like there's a pension crisis kind of occurring in North America? I think that's just one of many, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the problem with the pensions here is that they're all based upon faulty expectations. Uh, you have, you know, six, 7% annualized growth in, in a pension projected. That isn't going to happen, you know, with interest rates right now, even though they've climbed up on the 10 year treasury from 80 basis points to 130 or what have you, which is a big move. Huge. That's pittance. It's we're talking negative real interest rates. And so you're forced into speculation, into a stock market to retain, to get those yields, to get that return. 
that is as overvalued as by every metric as, as any ever in the United States, or really, I guess, ever in, in all markets, you're talking in terms of equity markets, as overvalued by every metric as you can find. So when you look at uh, insurance companies and pension programs throughout the country, yeah, it's a, it's a big, big potential problem, I think. And uh, it, it's something that I think there will come a day of reckoning because uh, as the population ages, uh, as the need to cash in on those pensions becomes more um, uh, uh, more in focus, yeah, they're going to really, 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 really struggle. And also, you have, you know, you have um, at least in terms of a broader perspective, you could look at pensions or you could look at social security. You have uh, a huge demographic of people, the baby boomers, who are retiring mm-hmm. uh, and are going to be needing social security and a generation of younger people who aren't having as many kids there are fewer and fewer worker workers supporting uh the huge number of people that uh are receiving social security benefits so whether it's social security or whether it's a pension program it's the same thing it's it's um uh, overextension it's underfunding and um i think you'll have problems in in both areas maybe social security being the worst mm-hmm. It's uh, we're, we're, we're living through an interesting time right now too. I think, uh, you know, and I, I mentioned this, you know, right before we got on here was, was just the fact that our, our generation has not lived through a down market. And it seems like everyone's just throwing a dart right now at a dartboard and everyone's a winner. I've never seen so many penny stocks go yeah. up in one single week in my life, which was the last <laughs> two weeks. And obviously the whole GameStop fiasco that mainstream media is talking about. So my question to you right now is when you see stuff like this, does this remind you more of maybe 1987, 2000, or does it remind you of 2008? And, and why is that? Well, in 1987, I was 17 years old. I, I um, hadn't quite started to think along these lines. I had my mind was, was elsewhere, but I will tell you that um, what I've seen up until this point, and whether you're talking about, you know, um, what happened in in the last several years, or um, nothing, nothing compares to what we see right now. Nothing. Mm. Uh, I think that what we are seeing right now is, look, it took this country, took the United States 300 years to create uh, $800 billion worth of wealth. And we've, as the Federal Reserve, created nine, $10 trillion in the last year. And uh, it, it's far worse now than it ever was then. Back then, it was um, uh, a liquidity crisis. It was uh, a credit crisis. What we see right now is is far, far, far more troublesome. You have uh, 140,000 small businesses gone forever. The, the small and medium-sized business in the United States represents 40% of the gross domestic product. It's been eviscerated. You have people who believe that stimulus is the only way that you see strength in the economy and strength in, in the markets. And you know, when you see stock markets at all-time highs and an economy that doesn't justify it, you see great wealth inequality. We're having a, a much bigger social problem this time. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is far more than anything I've ever seen in 08 or 2011 with precious metals where you see crashes. This is far, far more I think, uh, frightening ultimately because of the inability to get price discovery. You have markets at all time highs right now, whether it be the stock market, the bond market, 
in the real estate market. And what's different this time than every, any other time is that you have positive correlation between all three at all time highs. So let me, let me explain. When I started in this industry, stocks and bonds were inversely correlated. It was called risk on, risk off. And now they're positively correlated because interest rates are so low. Um, when I started in this industry in 1990, 89, 90, you could buy a U.S. Treasury paying 9%. Um, and that means you could put $2 million as you're retiring into U.S. Treasuries at 9% and make $180,000 a year tax-free. And you would live off your interest and save your principal for your heirs. Now, that same investment would cost $20 million instead of two. Um, to earn the same thing basically, or maybe 18 million. The, the moral of the story is, is that the situation has become far more compressed, far more um, tenuous. And so there really is nowhere to run. Uh, and I think that as ultimately we have been painted into a corner with interest rates, because ultimately when you look at a 10 year treasury paying 1.3% up from 80 basis points, so up to 130 basis points, issued by an insolvent government running massive levels of inflation. Um, and, you know, who in their right mind would buy a 10-year treasury uh, with interest rates or inflation running two, three, four percent? What's the real number? The CPI is bullshit. And yeah. um, the if you look at the Chapwood in Index or at um, John Williams Shadow Stats, where they're going to show you, um, they're going to show you the way that Inflation used to be calculated uh, prior to this administration and previous is going back to Carter and Reagan and mm -hmm. the way that it used to be calculated. He'll tell you, John Williams will, that inflation is 7, 8, 9% and rising. So when you look at a 10 year treasury earning 1.3% with inflation running two, three times that, uh, issued by an insolvent government that's, that's wickedly inflating the currency, who in their right mind would buy it? And the answer is nobody except the Fed. So the Fed has two choices. They continue to monetize, which leads to hyperinflation, which ultimately raises interest rates, or they back away from the bond market and interest rates spike and everything collapses. The point of it is, is that there's nowhere to run any longer. And this is why you're seeing such a proliferation into things like cryptocurrencies. And ultimately, I would argue, you're seeing the same type of run on a large scale in physical precious metals. You just don't notice it because the price has been held down. We can get into that too. But mm -hmm. the bottom line is, is that there really is nowhere to run. And the elite, I think, are repositioning ahead of this. Mm -hmm. um, I think we've been seeing that since 2017, a progression of the elite uh, removing counterparty risk and de-dollarizing. And I guess I'm just simply trying to say that there, this is of no historical comparison where we are. Uh, the numbers are too big. And, um, you know, it's... I think there'll be a day of reckoning. And, but you can see by the most sophisticated traders on the planet, they are de-dollarizing. They are getting out away from this because when it pops, uh, it will be a spiritual experience because when interest rates rise, it takes down the entire system. Stocks, bonds, and real estate all implode at the same time because of the positive correlation that they all have to one another, which is very unusual, and all three at all-time highs, which is even more unusual. And there is no room for a correction in the interest rate market. You saw that in 2018. They tried to normalize their balance sheet. They tried to raise interest rates to 3% and the market threw up. So I would argue we are very close to our limit right here at, at 130 basis points or 140 basis points of the market 
throwing up if it goes much higher and that becomes a big problem and that's when it all starts to spiral so are we almost there don't know but i would argue interest rates can't move up much higher before there is uh, uh, going to be some sort of a, of, of a uh, uh, consequence to pay for that and the higher those rates go uh, the greater the problem becomes and in particular you talk about pension funds well you know, if interest rates rise, the bond market collapses, the stock market implodes, and then what? What happens to those pensions? You know, they, they go upside down is what happens. So yeah, we, we have pushed the laws of nature so far, and we have held back the cleansing of the system for far too long that when it does correct, it's gonna bring down a lot of things with it, pensions and uh, Real estate, and portfolios what about real estate and, in this? Absolutely. Real estate is at all times highs also, exactly. and it is directly related to interest rates. Exactly. So first house I bought in um, 1994, interest rates were eight and seven eighths, uh, you know, and, and so on a, on a 30 year mortgage, eight and seven eighths versus right now, you can get under 3% here in the States on a, on a 30 year mortgage. So that means that someone could buy literally almost three times the house today than they could back then for borrowing money. Uh, big problems, and they're all related to, uh, you know, to the distortions that have been created through the Fed policy. And uh, the longer they keep holding it back and trying to distort um, the cleansing process that Mother Nature wants to, you know, to to fix the inequities that have been created, the excesses that have been created. It's a natural cleansing process. And if you hold it back through manipulation and money printing and stimulus, you're only going to make it worse in the end. And now you have a whole bunch of people who believe it's their right to continue to re receive stimulus. And um, so That's you the have welfare more state. It is. It is. And you have more money being created and less people being productive. So you have more money and less stuff. Mm -hmm. You're getting into the realm of inflation quickly. And uh, so bottom line is there will come a day of reckoning and the longer we hold it back the worse it's going to be but rest assured there will be a correction there mm -hmm. will be a day of reckoning and things don't just go straight up forever especially when it's funded by you know non-stop government printing zimbabwe and weimar republic proven that 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 isn't a recipe for success now i want to tie it a little to so i want to stay a little bit on the economic philosophy of the conversation we're having right now so do you think that this distortion at least this is this is in our conversations, me and Dan, and our little community, like in my belief from an economic perspective, listening to Thomas Sowell, Milton Friedman, you know, how, listening to people like Peter Schiff, yourself, uh, do you believe that, well, first off, that now with Yellen and the Federal Reserve um, in, the, um, in the government, that's going to be a merger of the Fed and the government, which is not what we want. That's the first thing. And secondly, do you think that this economic philosophy from the central planner of Keynesian economics and MMT modern day monetary theory. Do you think that is the primary factor driving this illusionary economy that we're seeing being driven by the government? Well, I think you're witnessing the final chapters of a Keynesian failed experiment. Mm -hmm. You know, you Keynesian economics is, is uh, a level of thinking that is, is, um, formulated by consumption holding up a blanket of debt, consumption and spending holding up a blanket of debt. And in good times, it works. Um, the problem is when we contrast it to uh, the Austrian school of economics, I would argue it by uh, interest rates are set by the market rather than by the government. 
Uh, and it's an, an environment where growth is built by investment, savings, and reinvestment. That's the antithesis of what we see now, where growth is built by debt and spending. And you can see why a lot of people who think about it things this way would believe that COVID-19 was a man-made event. Now I'm gonna take a step back and just say, not saying I believe this, maybe I do, maybe I don't, maybe there's parts of it that I do. But when you have the entire Western world that has created immeasurable amounts of debt um, in a Keynesian system that has to have continual spending and consumption to keep it afloat, and we're talking about overextension and final chapters of a Keynesian experiment gone bad, here's a way where you can stop the engine of spending and consumption at the same time no one gets blamed for it but a virus um, and everyone faces the same catastrophe, a, uh, a collapsing of the economy and a smothering of that blanket of debt uh, because the spending and the consumption ceases. So then you get government stimulus coming in to the rescue to help everyone and you build a whole generation based upon a socialist agenda. But the thing of it is, is that um, Keynesian experiment has proven to fail. And I think that this is a prime example of it. You, you don't build growth through debt. You don't build growth through um, spending and, and, and consumption. You build debt through savings, investment, and reinvestment, period. And in particular, as it pertains to interest rates, I would simply say, here in, in lies to me, one of the biggest problems of the whole thing is that it's all manipulation of interest rates that creates an illusion of wealth. People feel wealthy when interest rates are low because their home value and their stock portfolio is high. Imagine if treasuries were paying 8% right now, US treasuries, who the hell in their right mind would buy stocks at their all time highs uh, in this environment when you could get 8% guaranteed by the US government. Um, and you know the rule of 70 seconds, the law of 70 seconds, it's uh, you take the interest rate that you're paid or being paid and, um, and divided into 72 tells you how long before your principal doubles. So at 8% interest rates, every nine years, your, your principal would double. Way better than risking to speculation. I went with interest rates right now at, at 1.3%. You're talking 70 years or whatever before your principal doubles. So fixed income isn't going to happen. So people are forced into speculation, into the, into, into the stock market, which is one reason you see it so high. But yeah, I, I think that um, no question about it, that interest rates uh, and distortions in valuation and all of these things are starting to, to come into focus. And when you talk about a Keynesian based economy, it, mm -hmm. it is dying and or dead um, because you'll never get that level of consumption and spending again underneath that blanket until you see the economy go back to what it was. And will it ever go back to what it was? I don't know. So it really becomes a problem. And I think people out there would, could do a whole lot worse than to follow the Austrian model. And that is to save, invest, and reinvest, to pare down debt. Uh, and, and you know, I think we're beginning to see very quickly here that um, maybe the Keynesian model uh, should just become part of the history books and, mm -hmm. uh, and move on past that. But that's a discussion for another day. So, you're, so, you're, so would you be in the school of thought that the GDP and the fixation on GDP and unemployment 
from a central planner perspective is just wrong. Well, it's wrong because the numbers that they provide are wrong also. And, you know, the, the Fed says, well, it's our job to provide full employment and, and keep inflation in check, stable prices. But it used to be uh, stable prices. And then it went to 2% inflation. And now it's averaging 2% inflation. So two things, the, lab, the, the information that comes out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS, you should take the, the letter L out of that equation. And it's BS. When you look at uh, when you look at um, unemployment, the numbers are so massaged. They, mm -hmm. they pull out all of the uh, disenfranchised workers and the people who fall off the charts after a certain period of time. The numbers are so much bigger than what unemployment mm -hmm. really says. And when you talk about inflation, the numbers that they give us are crap. And I, inflation is way higher. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. I do. There's uh, once it was the like a lot of times the, the labor statistics, they include employment from the government's perspective. So how many people are government employees, but in, from my understanding of economics, especially from the more macro Austrian free market perspective is government doesn't produce anything, doesn't provide any productivity to a growth of an economy. So how can their employment be a predictable or a viable number to depend on from an expansion perspective? It shouldn't it be at least. It's not. And there's right. no expansion there. And uh, you're seeing an expansion of government, people on the government dole and a contraction of people, the wealth creators. And, uh, you know, they're, they're raising taxes. You see people leaving all of the states with high taxes. People are moving to Florida, a thousand people a day. They're all leaving California. They're leaving places where the wealth creators are being taxed. Uh, and the economies have been eviscerated through through COVID and the reaction by the governments to lock everybody down. And um, that those lockdowns have, have destroyed the economy. Some of them will never come back. And I don't know if we'll ever see the way it used to be. I don't. And, um, you know, sometimes you get too far down a path for, for you never to come back. But um, there are distortions everywhere. And, and more and more people are now reliant upon uh, subsidies and stimulus just to make ends meet. This is, we're heading down, I think, yeah. a, a very bad path where there is a day of reckoning coming. coming. And uh, how, what that looks like, I don't know. But these are the reasons you mitigate your exposure to the U.S. dollar, where you realize that profit is not a four-letter word, uh, where you have to take a step back. You know, something you said earlier about a whole generation of people who have never seen a market correction. Well, you have all their advisors who have never seen it either. Mm. And so it's important to, to realize that everything in life is a cycle. Everything comes full circle. The old adage, the more it changes, the more it stays the same is true. Just because it's digital versus non-digital doesn't mean the laws of nature aren't playing, coming into play. And, and so we will have that day of reckoning. You know, people can't, should not, like you said, just believe you can close your eyes and throw a dart and make a nice return. It doesn't work that way, you know, and uh, we have uh, entered a period of time where you have a bunch of people who believe that is, look at the rise of cryptocurrencies. They've been extraordinary. And that's not how typical investments work. You know, what happened in GameStop is not how things work, but what happened after it crescendoed is, in other words, the market will always correct somehow, some way, whether it's by, you know, hook or crook, it will correct. Um, you can't continue to stimulate it forever. I think really the, the bigger issue to me with all of this is that I think we are, 
witnessing the beginning stages of the end of the dollar. And I think, you know, I gave a speech at, you said, mentioned Rick Rule. I, I was at his conference a few years ago, too, maybe in Vancouver. And I, I presented a chart that I had from a very wealthy client of mine who uh, was a client of um, JP Morgan Private Wealth. And this is the division of JP Morgan that works with the wealthiest people in the world. And it was a one page letter written to him. This gentleman owns an NBA franchise, very wealthy man. And he sent this to me. I blacked out his name and, and I posted it up on the, the screen. And it basically showed um, about seven or eight currencies going back to the 1400s that were all pretty much the reserve currency of the world at that time or the main currency. And all of them had lifespans of between 40 and 50 years. And we closed our gold window in 1971. We're living on borrowed time. The gist of what that letter said to all of their wealthy depositors was that we want you to mitigate your exposure to the US dollar through foreign currencies and precious metals because we believe the dollar will be challenged for singular world reserve currency status, challenged for singular world reserve currency status. Doesn't mean it's going away, but it will be challenged. And I think we're seeing that. And I've seen a progression of events that I've harped on now for the last year, since 2017, that has me believing wholeheartedly that this is coming true. And um, I mean, I'd like to take just a second just to go down that timeline. And for anyone who's listened to my presentations, I say this a lot, but for those who haven't heard it, I think it bears understanding and repeating those who have heard it. I'm sorry for being redundant, but to me, redundancy is important if it's, if, if what you're talking about is important. And I think it is in 30 years, I don't think I've seen anything that connects the dots for me any better. Um, in 2017, as cryptocurrencies and in particular, Bitcoin was accentuating, people were shedding precious metals in favor of buying other assets like a Dow Jones that was reaching all-time highs and cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, that was taking over the the um, you know the eye of the world, and it was a rough time to own precious metal company. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, as all of the central banks are selling their gold into 2017, none of them are buying. They're all net sellers, with the exception of maybe the Chinese and the Russians. We see the German Bundesbank say we want all our gold sent home from the New York Federal Reserve it was unusual at the time. They made a very big deal about it. And they said, we want it home by 2020, period. Um, within a few months of that happening, you saw the exact same thing with the Bank of Austria, the Bank of Hungary, Bank of Turkey, the Bank of Poland. The Dutch National Bank in 2018, a few months later, said we want all our gold home too, because gold is what broken systems emerge from, more or less is what they said. All of this, you can Google and find it. In 2018, the central banks bought more gold as a group than they did in the previous 60 years combined. Out of nowhere, they went from net sellers to bam, accumulating copious amounts, more than they purchased as a group in the 60 years previously combined. And so you have all of these central banks first repatriating their metal from the Bank of England and the New York Fed. You have in 2018, massive 180 degree turn by the banks accumulating more and more gold. In 2019, those numbers were up 90% from 18. So a trend that was continuing in motion. And then the Bank of International Settlements, which is the central bank or central bank reclassifying gold as the world's only other tier one asset next to US treasuries. Now this as far as central banks are concerned. A tier one asset is a riskless asset. So you have the banks pulling back their metal, 
massively accumulating and front running a decision that reclassifies gold after 80 years nearly of it only being US Treasury is now adding gold to that equation, putting it up on a pedestal. But yet no one talks about it. The media didn't talk about it. Um, I view that as the most significant event period of my 30 year career, period. Um, 2020 last year rolls around and you see a continuation of central bank buying of gold. And then you see what I believe was the biggest event of 2020, something that's coming true here next week. We'll talk about that too. But in 2020, um, we saw the rise of a new reportable group on the COMEX market titled The Others. So normally on COMEX, you have the commercials versus the specs, the specs being the hedge funds, the commercials being JP and Goldman and, and the boys and uh, they would battle against one another. When you look at the commitment of traders report, you see speculators versus the uh, commercials and one would go long, the other would go short. The commercial banks sell the shorts to the, to the specs, meaning the specs are short, the commercials are long and vice versa. They take the opposite side. Uh, and now you see in 2020, the rise of this third reportable group called the others, believed to be sovereign wealth funds and family offices, wealthiest private investors in the world. Um, they're doing something very interesting. Mm. They are standing for massive delivery, huge amounts of delivery taken off the COMEX market. COMEX was never designed to be a delivery mechanism. The COMEX was designed to hedge risk, to offset risk. We talk about that all the time. I use the COMEX. If I have a thousand ounces of gold in my warehouse, I'll sell a thousand ounces on COMEX because if what I own in my warehouse falls by a hundred dollars, instead of being down a hundred thousand dollars, I sold the exact thing short on COMEX. Now I'm up by the exact same amount, market neutral. So I never speculate with my inventory at, at, at Miles Franklin uh, so I can remain market neutral. Well, you know, you, you have a, a, a situation now where you have the, this group, the others who is standing for delivery um, and regardless of what happens to the price. And so you see the commercial banks always try to hit the price into um, the end of the delivery month to get people who have these contracts, they raise the margin and then they hit it. So you have to hang on and pay more money with margin calls to hang on. Well, these sovereign wealth funds say, go ahead, do it. We're gonna sit and take all of it off the exchange. And what we saw in deliveries last year in both gold and silver in a typical delivery month was equal to what we see in a typical year. Mm -hmm. um, they took off over a decade's worth of metal in 2020. Uh, and in 2021, now we're seeing the exact same thing. In fact, we see one of the biggest open interests ever leading into the uh, March delivery contract, which starts February 24th here. And, you know, you're talking the possibility, I don't know if it will, but in theory, the possibility of a massive short squeeze and run on the COMEX um, because of this, because this group is basically challenging the commercial banks and saying, well, fine. Well, well, we want it delivered because they're naked shorting. They're selling things that they don't own. Like back on February 1st, when they dumped one and a half billion ounces of silver to scare the Reddit crowd on the market at the open. Now, if you were a broker, you'd get fired and maybe prosecuted for that because at the open in the thin, thinnest of trading between New York and uh, between London and New York, they dump almost two years worth of global mine production like that. That ain't how you do it. That doesn't give you the best price. That's, that's poor trading to say the least, it's criminal. Uh, it should be spread out or bled out over days or weeks to give them that kind of quantity maximum return without affecting the price, right? Well, they did it as a drive-by shooting to affect price. 
you have the, the, the International Monetary Fund here last year as well, saying we want a new system. You have the Great Reset mm -hmm. coming by the uh, by by you know this this large World Monetary Organization. Um, draw the line. Look at look at the connection of dots here. You see the the most wealthy people in the world, starting with the central banks, pulling back their gold out of harm's way. All of them, all of these huge central banks pulling it home. You see the banks reclassify gold as a tier one asset and which they front run that decision by a year and a half. You see their friends, people in the know, the sovereign wealth funds, taking huge amounts of gold and silver off the of COMEX market uh, and taking delivery of it. It's not ending here today. You see the International Monetary Fund, 190 countries from around the world saying we want a new system. You see the World Monetary Organization, whatever it's called, saying we want a, a, a great reset. Um, all of these things to me, is a, is a linear progression of uh, removal of counterparty risk, mm. of underscoring the importance of gold and silver, but holding down the paper price, allowing them to accumulate massive quantities of it before they let it run. Uh, when you have a, a, a futures market that enables you to control price through naked shorting uh, it, it, and rhetoric through the media, uh, mm -hmm. It enables them to literally corner the market in physical product while the rest of us are enamored with everything else. And we'll wake up one day and it will be set free and gold and silver will be much higher than people can believe. They'll wake up and say, how the hell did that happen? And then trying to get it will be next to impossible. Yeah. I'll give you an example on that too. You know, we're talking about this March, this February 24th COMEX deal, the delivery. Um, normally getting thousand ounce bars is super easy. I can get as many as you want like that. And now... I called one of the largest distributors in the world and was told that I can't get any thousand ounce bars until March. Well, that to me tells me that Comex is, is frightened about a squeeze, frightened about a run on product. When you can't get thousand ounce bars for four weeks and I have to pay, sell them for over a dollar an ounce. I used to sell them for 20 cents over and get you as many as you want. So premiums up five times since last year, since 2019. And availability went from as many as you could put in a semi truck to no, you can't get any at all. These are things that are happening, a progression that is, is speeding up of highlighting at the highest levels, the importance of precious metals, the realization that these people are de-dollarizing and removing counterparty risk and accumulating as much as they can, taking delivery, not just leaving it, taking delivery, removing that counterparty risk and it's a progression that I see continuing to today. And here we go into the, um, you know, the, this next week will, will be another example of that and maybe more so than we saw at any point last year. I don't know exactly what the open interest is, but it's millions and millions of ounces. And you know, if, if you get a standing for delivery by a lot of these groups, again, it has the potential to create a run. And if you saw silver go to the moon like that, it would have the same effect on gold and platinum and palladium. This is what the Reddit group did. It, it shined a light upon the crap that's going on with price discovery and the manipulation. And I think it has the commercial banks really frightened right now. That's so interesting because this is really like a generational shift between like the battle of Wall Street versus Main Street and the little guys. So I think there is a lot of, uh, you know, social, social de debate and dilemma in that situation. But I, I wanted to ask you in particular, because this is, probably the biggest challenge, I guess, with our group of, or our generation. Um, I was talking to a broker last week and the one thing he said, he's like, your generation is a bunch of headline babies. What that means is like, we'll just see headlines and then we'll just run with that. 
And then like, we'll just stick with the narrative and then we'll go with that. Like a donkey so, with a carrot. Exactly. And it's just like feeding the narrative, feeding the narrative just keeps going and going. Right. So um, how do we break that? Like what, what is that one thing that's going to cause people to start saying there is an opportunity here to get into an asset class that is not getting a lot of love right now. You know, I, I just received my first batch of like silver bars because, you know, Nick and I've been talking about this and I'm sure, you know, we share the same philosophy, but like, what is the message to that group of people right now? The message is that you have to sometimes, I think, um, well, in terms of, of it being headlines, look, first and foremost, if, if you're following headlines to a degree, it's right. You, this group has created the headlines and has, has, has had the ability to bring into mainstream focus something that the rest of us older people haven't had any luck with. Uh, all of a sudden, just because of the 8 million people on Reddit that talked about the silver squeeze um, and about GameStop, you have a whole new uh, focus on, on what they're talking about. So I guess I think in terms of big picture macro, yeah. and I think if I were going to give advice to anyone, it is to look at the fundamentals and, and pay less attention to the price uh, and to the headlines. And this is what the big money, you can see what they do as well. They're looking at the big picture and they've been doing this now for several years, giving them the ability to, uh, to position themselves. And I think that, you know, I talk, you mentioned the little, the little guy never wins well um, versus wall street. I talk about this too. I, I when I used to be a stockbroker, uh, way, way, way back when, many years ago, financial advisor, and uh, I, I would take the class. I took the class to become a stockbroker. They give you a book this thick. It's called uh, Series Seven Manual, and the very first page, and uh, it stuck with me to this day because I had already been in in Swiss franc investments and precious metals before I went down this road, and. Uh, I'll never forget page one says of this manual, it says the little man rule. And it says the little man never wins. The little man always um, uh, decides to make a move after the big person, the big man has established their position. Well, take a step back and look at what I was talking about here. Uh, it, when you talk about headlines, it's too late, generally. In, in, in this case, it's not because what they have done, what the group, the Reddit group and your generation has done is shine a light upon maybe the biggest headline and it's stick with the narrative it's don't don't jump from headline to headline trust your gut your fundamentals and stick with it because this is i think as big of a of an operative i think silver is a generation of an opportunity i really do think it's a generational opportunity a once in a generation opportunity uh to accumulate an asset that is wholeheartedly undervalued that has massive massive utility and and potential and that the most powerful people in the world are doing all they can to hold down the price and to keep the the story from getting out there that to me is really the important thing here is is not jump from headline to headline but to trust your gut and run with it you um i i think you know the the, the millennial generation has gotten a bad rap uh i think that they're They've proven that they uh, are uh, coordinated. They are in, in intellectual. They are insightful. They are able to um, to work as a team. Uh, 
in many ways a lot better than the older generation. It's just that uh, they didn't have the wherewithal. Maybe they do now, or they're beginning to, as, as a lot of them have become enriched with cryptocurrencies. And certainly they have savvy and um, the ability to communicate better than, than just about, about anyone else, I think. Um, and that's proven over the last several weeks. So, you know, there's the old saying that, that, that the Chinese think in terms of, of decades and people in the United States think in terms of, of days and weeks. Mm-hmm. You just have to take a bigger picture approach to all of this and don't think in terms of days and immediacy. Look at the big picture. See what's happening. See what the big money is doing, not what they're saying. And um, trust the economic fundamentals. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that's the best advice I can give. It's a tough question simply to say that um, I think that this is not just a, a get in, pump it up and get out type of deal. I think that this is huge. Uh, I think that gold and silver have been money for 5,000 years. And um, I think the biggest money on the planet is showing the importance of it. And um, I think you guys have, have uh, your generation has really helped shine a light on that. And I don't think the story is over yet. I, I, quite to the contrary. I think there's a lot to be written about how this finally plays out. And I guess I would simply say, as it pertains to precious metals, it should be a portion of everybody's portfolio, mm-hmm. everyone, even in the very best of times, people should have that anchor in their portfolio and shining a light on that. Um, uh, look, across the globe, Rick may have said this when he spoke with him, he's fond of saying there's been a one half of 1% allocation to precious metals mm-hmm. um, across the entire financial matrix. Well, since 1980, if you go back to 1980, the average was two and a half percent at the peak last last bull market peak. We've gone all the way down to one half of one percent, just a, a regression to the mean where only two and a half percent of the populace has um, uh, or where the populace has just two and a half percent of their assets to twenty five hundred per hundred thousand. That would be a five fold increase in, in, in demand. So I guess what I'm simply saying is stick with your belief. Don't jump from headline to headline. Find something you believe in. If you believe in Bitcoin, hold on with both hands and go. If you believe in precious metals, take a big position in it and hang on to it. I think that now more than ever, there are opportunities that people will be able to, generational opportunities that people will be able to benefit from with that type of thinking. And I I think um, cryptocurrencies and precious metals and de-dollarizing will be the next chapter of the book. And in large part, because of... uh, because of the message that is being broadcast across the globe by, by your generation of people. I, I think the comment that that gentleman gave you really isn't fair. And um, I think you've proven us all wrong, actually. He, so here's the thing with what you just said about the, with the percentage of allocation of portfolio to precious metals, let's say one and a half percent. Is it not in the advantage of the institutions to have the general market be ignorant of the value of real money because it allows them to take advantage of a suppressed price to continue to hoard and buy it over time. So this way, when the free market or the regular market does collapse, well, it can't fix itself in terms of individual people, but the institutions themselves are hedged and can fix themselves in that environment. Yeah. So if we go back to um, when I started in this industry, there's a term in economics called Gibson's paradox which is the inverse relationship between real interest rates and precious metals. And so when you have embark upon a a philosophy of low interest rates to stimulate and make people feel wealthy, it's an illusion of wealth 
in 401ks and home values. They used to hold down the price of gold and silver for that reason. All of the central banks did. They would hold it down so people would uh, be comfortable with gold and silver, with excuse me, with dollars and yen and uh, Deutschmark and pound and make loans and um, uh, use currencies, use the system. This is what enriched all the bankers. And so if you embark upon a low interest rate philosophy, you have to kill the canary in the mine shaft. That's the precious metals. And so for a long time, the folks at GATA have shown a light upon manipulation of, of precious metals because interest rates were kept so low. This is what creates the illusion of wealth. They couldn't let uh, precious metals rise because uh, if they did, it would, it would show the frailty of the, of the system. And so what happened then, if we go back and see how the progression of this happened and what it means is that the central banks were all coordinated, the Western central banks, they had a plan where they would take their gold and they would lease it to the commercial banks at less than about a half a percent was what it would cost. So the commercial banks at Goldman and JP and Citi and Deutsche, they would take gold from the, the central banks and, and borrow it from them at less than a percent, half a percent. They would take that, that gold and they had two obligations. Number one, dump it onto the market. Number two, take the proceeds and buy treasuries with it. Dumping it on the market, selling short, dropping it would de de uh, depress the price. So they borrow the gold, they sell it immediately. They take the proceeds and they buy treasuries. Now, first of all, you're borrowing or, or borrowing gold at less than 1%. You sell it to the marketplace, drive down the price with the intention of buying it back. Uh, you take the proceeds by treasuries, which uh, suppresses interest rates, stabilizes the bond market. They make a ton of money in, in those bond purchases. Uh, and then as they uh, cover their positions, as the price is, is driven down so low, they keep the price low. They let it rise back up again. They suck in the speculators. They do the same thing over and over and over again, never really letting it rise because um, it was a self-funding mechanism where keeping gold low and buying treasuries with the proceeds by the commercial banks. Well, by 2000, 2001, you had four or five commercial banks who had the largest short position the COMEX market had ever seen, ever. Uh, and they were continually doing the same thing, suppressing the price, taking the proceeds and buying treasuries. So interest rates stay low, the bond market stays high and the price of gold stays low. Then all of a sudden you had 9-11 and Afghanistan and Iraq and, and people started, the rest of the world started buying precious metals. So I would argue this, that the central banks went from holding down the price to create a, a, a dollar a Western central bank currency strength and illusion of it uh, through the, the term Gibson's paradox, uh, keep precious metals low, keep interest rates low. There's an illusion that the currencies are strong, everything's good. And then all of a sudden they started to get overrun by physical demand, uh, you know, after 2001, 2002. Uh, and I think they went from a, a position of trying to maintain dollar strength and low interest rates to one of cornering the physical market in precious metals. And really since 2007 and 2008, I would argue that most of the moves that we have seen in, um, in precious metals have, or in uh, um, accumulation of precious metals and the, and the keeping of it low has been so that the big money can corner the physical market. They're massively accumulating at the Chinese and the Russians and all of the central banks bringing it home and accumulating it. Big, big money is using the manipulated price to accumulate it, as you can see by the reclassification of gold, rather than to maintain this dollar illusion 
or the, the Western central currency illusion through Gibson's paradox. So it went from one thing to another. Originally, it was done to uh, keep everyone happy in central Western central bank currencies. And now it's changed. I think it's changed to look at what the sovereign wealth funds are doing. Look at what the central banks are doing. Look at what the big money is doing. Mm -hmm. JP Morgan. JP yeah. Morgan has a mass north of 25 million ounces of gold and a billion ounces of silver. It's the single largest physical position of metal the world has ever seen as they've held down the paper price and paid a $920 million fine for doing so. Yet they continue to be the administrator of the largest silver trust in the world. Um, the, the fine was a slap on the wrist. The big money is allowing their brethren to do this. And maybe all the silver that JP Morgan owns is the US government's. Maybe it's Chinese government. Maybe it was a deal that they reached. I don't know. But when you see these institutions continually violating antitrust law, paying what amounts to pittance in fines for doing this, um, I think the handwriting is on the wall. You can see what the big money is doing. Do not listen to what they say. Do what they are doing. And that is accumulating massive amounts of metal and pulling it off at the exchanges and removing counterparty risk and de-dollarizing. The trend, yeah. I think, is firmly in motion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think we'll all wake up one day and say, how the hell did that happen? And, you know, when you see at the very top the inability to get thousand ounce bars, um, you know, we, we did over a half a billion dollars in sales last year. I'm very high up on the food chain. I can get this stuff easily. And now all of a sudden it's gone. I can't mm -hmm. get thousand ounce bars. I can get silver eagles easier than I can thousand ounce bars. And silver eagles are hard to come by right now. It, it, it's a very unusual situation, but I think you can take a step back and see big money is, is frightened. And I think that they've been using these manipulated prices, not just to manipulate the price and make money trading, but for a reason. It used to be, Gibson's paradox. And now I think it's to de-dollarize and reposition for what comes next. If I had to guess how this all plays out, I would guess that we see a new currency at some point, whether it be a BRICS nation, Brazil, Russia, China, India, South Africa, or US, or both competing currencies, cryptocurrency-based, blockchain-based currency uh, that is tethered to some degree to a portion of gold backing. Why else reclassify it? Why else see all the central banks rush to get it home over the last four years? Why else see the sovereign wealth funds taking massive amounts off of COMEX when they never did it before, ever, and now taking huge amounts off? Uh, why allow a bank like JP Morgan to literally violate every antitrust law there is in terms of holding down the price to accumulate massive position in it, slap them on the wrist, allow them to continue doing what they're doing, if not for a reason? Don't look at... at the result of these fines or of just look at what the big money is doing. Don't yeah. look at the price. Price is a tool of misdirection. And if you take a step back, I think you can see that the most sophisticated money on the planet believes that gold and silver is very important. Uh, maybe that's why they've let Bitcoin run unfettered mm. um, without, you know, really killing it. Maybe, maybe they're trying, maybe that's, that's why they're allowing it so that people will be, um, distracted, distracted, yeah. distracted uh, and while they continue to de-dollarize and into uh, something that has been considered uh, collectively by all human civilization for mm -hmm. almost 6,000 years as well. So I don't know how this all plays out, but I'll simply say this to you that um, I believe it to be very, 
I, I believe very strongly that the most sophisticated money on the planet has a, a plan for gold and silver, or they would not have gone to such great lengths to massively accumulate it, pull it off of the exchanges, reclassify it. And, and to this day, into next week, you can see they're continuing to remove it from counterparty risk to take possession, to take delivery. And the price isn't the important thing yet. In fact, the low price, the manipulated paper price has given them the ability to do so at subsidized prices mm -hmm. while everyone else is distracted at Bitcoin and, and the Dow Jones at all time highs. Yeah. It's misdirection. Misdirection is so pervasive. I talk Slide about this all the time. The, the book, The Art of War, which is, was written in the fifth century BC by Sun Tzu, a Chinese military yeah. strategist. This is taught at West Point, mandatory reading at CIA, taught in every major business school on corporate hierarchy, taught in every law school on formulating arguments. Uh, it, it is classic misdirection. Mm -hmm. It's the no look pass. They're, they're letting things run while they are quietly mm -hmm. scooping up subsidized priced physical metals in a world where it's, it's depleted and getting harder and harder to find. Mm -hmm. It's pretty incredible, honestly, because, you know, we're, 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 we're the, the joke between millennials is like, we suffer from like some form of ADHD, right? So like, we'll just pick up on something that is just the hot topic. And, you know, I get messages from people all the time saying, Hey, did you see the stock? Did you see the stock? And Nick and I have been so focused on silver and gold. Mm -hmm. People are looking at the us. The macro, like it's always like you said, right? The macro yeah. environment, you know? It, it, it well, does the macro will win out over time. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's the cycle. It, it's the cyclical movements are macro driven, whereas the year to year base is very niche micro driven. You can make a lot of money trading. You know, uh, I, I watch a guy online. His name is Johnny Bravo, and he's a trader. He's awesome, by the way. And, and I, I try to watch him every night and he's a trader and he trades in and out and in and out and in and out. Well, there's the, the micro <laughs> and there's a lot of potential there. But the macro perspective is what the big money looks at, the repositioning. Um, and I think this is a generational reposition. Uh, the days of the dollar are coming to an end. You know, like I said, it, you know, a trillion seconds ago being 31,688 years ago, we're creating money like it's going out of style. We'll never be paid back ever. Um, you can't. And, and so they are destroying the currencies and, and, and rapidly accelerating the destruction of them. And as that destruction continues rapidly, um, I think you'll see things start to change quickly. Also, um, there will be a shift away from the dollar and what starts as a trickle will turn into a deluge. And I think that's coming. Look, the macro perspective is the way to do it. I mm -hmm. think you, there's a portion of your assets that you can trade with and be micro with. But I think if you want to uh, get out of the way of, of, you know, what's coming. I think you, you'd look at it from a macro perspective with the majority of your assets. And in a, in a world of uncertainty, I fall back on 5,000 years worth of history. Look, I'm not telling people to buy gold and silver to get wealthy. You can do that with silver right now. But to me, you buy precious metals right now because it's, it's wealth mm -hmm. and, and it's been wealth for 5,000, 6,000 years. And uh, these are very, very uncertain times where um, things are changing very quickly. But look at what the biggest money in the world has been doing now for the last several years. They haven't been selling their gold. They've been accumulating at subsidized prices and bringing it home. And that's the most important lesson that I take away from all of this. And I simply will say this, the most sophisticated, well-funded, well-informed traders on the planet would not have class reclassified gold as the world's only other tier one asset next to U.S. treasuries after almost 80 years if it wasn't part of the long game. 
And that's why I think it will be tethered to a new world reserve currency, maybe 10% backing. It won't be convertible, but it will have a role to play in what comes next. And you can see that by the movements of the biggest traders on the planet. I have, so in my mind, there's a risk scenario where the younger generation, because we were, we're tying it back always to look at the macro, look at the big money, look at the global dynamics. But the thing is, and I'm sure we can agree, is the younger generations are not very in line with the macro world. They're very much more in line with the micro world. And that inability to contextualize the macro environment, the political dynamics, the economic dynamics, the social dynamics, and all, how it all ties up and, and behaves on cyclical behaviors is a risk factor in the way people are allocating their capital. So for me, that's really, that's where I see kind of a, a, a sustainable problem. A sustainability problem is in the fact that we can't contextualize our future actions because we're too fixated on our short-term actions. So to me, like with the pension problem, with the real estate problem, with the low interest rates, with the abuse of the monetary system, with the progressive uh, government philosophy, the inability for younger generations to contextualize and properly allocate the capital on a longer time frame, which is necessary to heal the economy, that to me fuels that risk. It's an ad because we're the future generation that's driving the future of the economy. So I, I think there's a disconnect in our behavior. We want to be like, we have access to data that you cannot deny. Nobody can deny that. But I don't think we're capable yet at contextualizing it on a longer time frame. And that's where the micro, the macro kind of falls apart after for our generation, because most of them don't understand the value of gold or silver. They don't understand how politics impacts the economy. They, they, they think the zero interest rate is a good thing, our generation. Uh, they, 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 all they want to do is buy a house now. It's low, low, low. And that's how they're all going crazy, but they're not realizing the only reason why prices are going up because you're at low interest rate. And what happens when you have to raise it? Because to heal the economy, you have to raise it. So uh, we're getting marginalized as a generation. And then our framework to me is a risk factor. Well, you, I don't... you just said it beautifully. I mean, it's, that's everything you've said. And it seems like you got it. You've grasped it. And that, that is the key. I think you don't look at the, the, the trees, you look at the forest. It doesn't mean you can't, take advantage of the micro side of things. And there is a way to do it. But everything you just said is, is it. Uh, that's what the big money does. And they are repositioning ahead of that. I think you have to take a step back and look at the big picture. This, these are generational changes. Um, uh, someone like the both of you who, who are getting the message out, you know, I have faith in you. You seem to get it pretty darn well. That to me is the key to, to, to everything is big picture. Life is big picture. But I, we, we, I think we understand these things a little more because we listen to people like yourself. We, we, we seek conversations with gentlemen like yourself who, who seem to be capable of explaining things and highlighting macro developments on a, on a scale that you don't get from the general market, that you don't get from the educational system, that you don't get from the government, that you don't get from our peers. It's, it's a small community, which, you know, so it's like, you know, there's, it's, it's, there's that little disconnect, you know, there's a small group of people that are getting it. And then there's a large people who are trying to figure it out, or at least they, you see that they realize there's problems, but they haven't connected the dots yet. You know, and there has to be a new system. You know, uh, when you see 190 countries from around the world, the international monetary fund saying we want a new system, uh, a new Bretton Woods, as they called it, <clears throat> there has to be a new system. When, <clears throat> the dollar was anointed the world reserve currency 
1944 at Bretton Woods, it was backed by gold. And so the other currencies of the world pegged their, their currencies to the US dollar. And the US dollar was as good as gold, not for the citizens, because when Roosevelt confiscated gold in 33, the general public couldn't turn in their gold uh, or their currency for gold, but the rest of the world could, after Bretton Woods, they could say, uh, we want to turn in our, our whatever currency it is and, and, and turn it in for our dollars, rather, and turn it in for gold. So um, you would have other currencies that would buy our gold, or excuse me, our dollars and our treasuries, uh, and they would then be able to turn in the, uh, their hoard of dollars into gold. In other words, it was as good as gold, and so it was backed by something. And since 1971, when that gold window was closed, dollar is backed by nothing anymore except a printing press and, and a military. It used to be that, uh, you know, there was stability and strength behind the U.S. dollar, and now it's just a, a pile of debt. And I think that's the macro perspective that people need to realize is that the biggest money in the world has been for several years de-dollarizing, and now you have half of the world saying we want a new system. They're revolting away from from the dollar just being able to unlimited uh, to create unlimited wealth through a printing press. It's not fair and it's not right and it's immoral. And I think you're gonna see that type of a generational shift. So when you talk about micro perspective, there are opportunities. There are a lot of opportunities to, you know, to enrich your wealth in, in a micro perspective, but you'll get rolled over by the macro when it changes, when the system changes. And that's kind of the most important thing is to not risk the base of your pyramid to speculation. You have to, I think, have the base of your pyramid in things that are stable and solid and, and generational, like precious metals. Um, because if you, if you take too big of a risk right now with speculation and, uh, and trading and a micro perspective, when we are entering a macro generational shift, I think you can get rolled over by that. So I think you have it really nailed very, very well. But, but to me, look, there's a place for Bitcoin. There's a place for cryptocurrencies. I would put it a different part, part of the financial pyramid than maybe many people would. I'd put it up near the top of it. And, uh, but I think we are entering a period of time where we're going to see a generational shift where the rest of the world is going to say, we don't want dollars anymore. And um, we want a new system. And we want something that is tethered so that governments can't inflate away the value. And that's where I think gold comes into play. And that's why they reclassified it as a tier one asset. There's no other reason in the world for them to have reclassified it as tier one if they weren't expecting it to play a significant role in what comes next. And so here again, look how little information was talked about the fact that there's now two tier one assets, U.S. treasuries and, and gold. But why would the most sophisticated traders on the planet do that if it wasn't important and do it very quietly? I think it's coming. I do. And uh, micro perspective is not the way to look at your wealth. Micro perspective is the way to look at uh, increasing your wealth. Mm -hmm. But the big portion of your wealth must be a macro perspective. You have to take a broader look. And, uh, and I think that that will more than anything help people build wealth and continue to to preserve it and continue to build it. You build it up on the macro, on the micro part, you, you retain it and preserve it on the macro perspective. So I want to bring it down. Oh, no, okay. I want to switch it over to bring a little back to silver. Now with the industrial demand 
of EV green expanding and the clear demand on the retail and wealth side for monetary purpose of silver, where do you see silver going? Like we know we, it hits, it's hit $50 twice in history. So, you know, you have the triple top that, that appears to be coming. So like, do you see it going higher and like, where do you see it within the realm? I think it's the most undervalued asset in the world. I, I think when you see JP Morgan amass a billion ounces, um, it should tell you where it's going. Um, uh, it's the only asset in the world that has demand, massive demand, bracketing it on both sides. Uh, you have industrial demand, which is ever expanding. You have the Green New Deal, as you mentioned, uh, on top of all of the other things. And last year, there was a 300 plus million ounce shortfall in, in demand versus supply. Uh, you have uh, the Chinese rail belt railroad and um, belt road and rail initiative. It's the largest infrastructure project in human history underway right now. It's connecting 65% of human population, connecting Asia and Africa. Oh. The need for silver uh, in a digital world, connecting um, these two land masses and all these people is immeasurable. Mm. Uh, of course, you have things like you know, batteries, a Tesla and, and, and iPads and iPhones, Samsung and, and Apple. The, the demand for silver on an industrial side is huge, especially when you realize it's a depleted asset. Mm. Uh, there's rumor that Elon Musk is, is making, a, uh, either has or is making a, a large purchase of silver. He'd be a fool not to. Um, and I guarantee you that Apple and Samsung are, are waking up to this as well if they haven't already. Here again, hold down the paper price with, with levered naked shorting uh, and accumulate the physical when no one else is paying attention because the price is, has knocked everyone off the tree. No one's looking at the price when Bitcoin's going to the moon and the Dow Jones is at all time high. But the big, big, big money, well, that gives them carte blanche to scoop things up in copious quantities without gaining too much, too much attention. But there are very few assets, if any, in the world that have both massive industrial and investment demand at the same time. You know, I um, talk about uh, the gold to silver ratio a lot, uh, and it's, it's been a big focus over the last few years. And I was talking to Keith Neumeyer about that who's the CEO of First Majestic uh, Silver, one of the biggest mm -hmm. silver mining companies in the world. And I said, Keith, what do you think about the gold to silver ratio? At the time it was 80 to one. He says, Andy, I don't look at that. He says, I look at the mining ratio. Mm -hmm. I said, what's that, Keith? He says, well, that's how much we pull out of the ground, gold to silver. He says, the entire industry in 2020 pulled eight to one out of the ground. Eight ounces of silver for every one ounce of gold. I said, whoa. How long do you think it can stay at 80 to one? He says, well, you tell me, Andy, how long can we mine it at eight to one and sell it at 80 to one? So you have a depleting asset. In other words, there's only a few big silver mines in the world. 70% um, of all the silver that comes to market is a byproduct of mining other metal. It's a byproduct of mining gold and copper and, and tin and what have you. Um, the big silver deposits were found decades ago. It's found in nature in a form called epithermal. It's very close to the surface. Long before advanced imagery, the big deposits were found. So you don't have new giant silver deposits coming online all the time. In fact, last year, there was over a 300 million ounce shortfall supply to demand. The year before it was 250 million ounces shortfall. So in the past two years alone, a half a billion ounces of silver shortfall between supply and demand. So you have a massively increasing demand in a green new deal and into away from uh, combustion engine into uh, uh, you know, um, solar and wind and uh, um, battery, which in and of itself would tremendously accentuate the demand for 
silver moving forward. Uh, and then you have massive shortfalls coming out of the ground. You have a, a mining ratio of eight to one when the price right now is almost 70 to one. Mm -hmm. There could not be a better setup for massive upside potential. Uh, and that's why you get guys like Big Squeer, who I love dearly, uh, who is a massive crypto guy, believes wholeheartedly in cryptos, saying that silver will outperform all the cryptos because of that type of upside potential. Now, he says 600 bucks. Could it get that high? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But the bottom line is, is that there are very few assets that come to mind for me that have that kind of physical demand in investing, massive demand in industrial, a depleted asset, uh, and, and like expanding use cases. Uh, yeah, and also half of its value, its double peak high of 1980. Mm -hmm. There are no assets out there that are half of 1980 value. So when you talk about macro perspective, mm -hmm. this is what the Reddit group no realized. On top of the huge bullish argument for it, you have uh, uh, four or five commercial banks that are short over half of the all the open interest on the COMEX market. There is no other commodity traded that is like that, nothing like that. It's If, if, if that much energy and effort is ex expended to keep the price low, what does it say for the significance and the importance of it? Let's not forget about military. There's 500 ounces of silver used in the tip of every Tomahawk cruise missile. I mean, silver is, an, is a massively important metal that is becoming harder and harder to find. It is depleting in nature. Uh, and you can see the biggest, most sophisticated, well-funded, well-informed traders on the planet are spending a lot of effort and a lot of money to not only hold the price down, but to accumulate. Ask yourself, why hold the price down? They don't do it just for shits and giggles. They do it specifically. Right now, I would argue to corner the physical supply. They're using the disingenuous paper price whereby they can dump two years worth of production at the open to drive down the price to freak people out when they're accumulating so many ounces. They're, they're holding down the price too accumulated. And that's the most important thing I think to take away from this. Do not look at price. Price is a tool of misdirection. Look at fundamentals. Look what the biggest money in the world is doing and have been doing really since 2017. It is a linear progression of accumulation and removal of counterparty risk. That's what's happening. And when you see it trickle down to the fact that I can't get thousand ounce bars right now when I could have gotten them like literally like gumballs, as many as you want for the cheapest premium ever. And now I can't even get them and premiums are five times what they used to be. Moving all the way down into the retail market where you're seeing all these online companies running out of product, it's happening right in front of us. And so I think you, this is what you take away from it. Here's the macro perspective in all of this. The macro perspective is that gold and silver have been wealth for 5,000 years and the most sophisticated, well-funded, well-informed traders on the globe are accumulating it. JP Morgan, the, the billion ounces of silver they have, well, they only have, I don't know, um, 150 million ounces on COMEX, something like that. The rest of it, they control off of COMEX, in, in physical, in their, in their warehouses, in their vaults, off of it. Um, the big money is accumulating metal not to get rich. They're not doing it to enrich themselves. Uh, of course they will when the price runs. They're doing it to position, I think, for a, the new system. And you can see by the acceleration of the destruction of the currency, 
that we are closely coming to, to a new system. And 190 countries say, we want a new system through the new Bretton Woods. And so and then you have the World Monetary Organization. So, well, let's reset. You know, well, it's all happening and it's speeding up. So if you want to be outside the system, here is the rise of the proliferation of cryptocurrencies and should be precious metals. There are very few things that allow you the ability to be outside the system in preparation for what new system comes next. And here again, they would not have reclassified gold if gold was not going to be part of a new system. So silver and gold, when I say gold, I mean silver too. Silver won't be part of a new system most likely, but it has a 90% correlation in movement with gold. And I, I think that it's the buying opportunity of a generation. I truly do believe that. It's interesting too, because um, I'm, I'm just going on various, the last two weeks, we've been going on various like precious metals websites, yours as well. And that we've noticed that there's been a, like, you can't, there's no, there's no metals left in storage. Right. So I think, I think this is the beginning, like you said, of something a lot bigger that most people need to pay attention to. Um, Real quick, really... just before, before you, you jump from that, I have more silver than just about anyone in the country, in the industry. The thing is this, uh, two years ago, a year and a half ago, I shut down my online store. I, I'm building a new website. My website sucks when it comes to looking at our product, but I have, um, I did that for several reasons. There's way too much identity theft and consumer fraud. We could talk for an hour. I could tell you stories that blow your mind completely and totally warp your mind when I tell you the stuff I've seen. So I close it. I'm old school. I do things on a phone call, but love that. I have, Cold I, believe great. The, I, I think old school belongs for precious metals and the privacy, but I have a trader, my head trader, my head logistics guy. We've been doing this for 31 years and, um, most of the online companies have been doing that a third that long. I have levels of supply chain acquisition um, uh, partners that no one else has. I've been doing this for a very long time and I work with every major distributor, every major mint on top of the fact that I have a network of 1500 small coin companies around the industry that sell me everything that comes in their shop. And I have stuff that other people don't. I don't broadcast it online, but I have in stock probably 300,000 ounces of 2021 silver, Philharmonics, Kangaroos, Krugerrands, Eagles, mm. Maple Leafs, Junk Silver, Bars. Um, I work 24 hours a day, seven days a week to do this. I go deep into my line of credit and pay four, five, six months in advance when no one else does that. Most of the big online companies work with one very large distributor. I work with that one or two or three large distributors that all the online companies work with, but I work with them all. Mm -hmm. Most of these online companies work with one. I work with them all, plus a myriad of small and mid-sized businesses. So do understand that if your listeners out there are looking for precious metals, not only have I been the least expensive in North America, literally for the last year, by and large, um, I have it and I can deliver it. Now, the, the challenge becomes when I sell out of it, how do I get more? I'm selling silver maple leaves right now on special for $6.99. And I, I almost want to throw up saying that because in November of 19, December, you could have bought them for $2.89 over. At $6.99, I'm cheaper than anyone in America uh, on them. I sell silver eagles. I'm one of only 24 US mint distributors. I sell them at, at 10 bucks over. I'm cheaper than anyone. Is this, is this going to continue? I don't know, but I have to pay wicked premiums to buy the stuff months in advance, and I can't hedge the premium. If it changes, I, I'm in the same boat as everyone else wondering if they need to 
if, if it's wise for them to pay these high premiums um, because I have to pay them myself. But um, for your listeners out there who want silver, not only do I have it, I'm better priced than anyone in the country and I'll deliver immediately. Now, when I run out of the stuff that I have, getting it is becoming harder and harder and harder because no one in the industry is selling us anything back. There is no secondary market at all. It's gone. So everything that's coming in is brand new. When the mints of the world run out of product, it's game over. Because that's why they say there is no bull market like a precious metals bull market. Because every other bull market in the world speaks to our desire to become wealthy. Precious metals is different. It speaks to our desire to protect our ass. And the crazier the world gets or the higher the price goes only reinforces that motivation. You can make a ton in Bitcoin. And, you know, there's a little bit of the fear in there too, because it's protection from the system. But still, you're like, holy crap, I made all this money. I should cash out and buy some other things with it or with gold and silver, it doesn't work that way. The higher the price goes, people are like, damn, I was right. I knew it was going to get bad here. I'm hanging on to that because it's a scary world out there. I'm not going back into fiat. And so there's no secondary market. And that's why they say there's no bull market like a precious metals because it, it, it speaks to our desire to protect ourselves. And I'm telling you, uh, we're, I, I've done in the last six weeks a year's worth of business in normal years, in six weeks. And I'm working 18 hours a day, seven days a week, every day every day, every night, um, just to keep up. And that also includes scouring the globe for new product. So we do have it, but it is becoming harder and harder and harder to get. The US Mint, as an example, ran out of gold for the most part, second week in January. That shit never happens, uh, maybe in October, November. But to see that happen the second week in January should tell you that not only is it becoming really important, uh, on many levels, but the biggest money in the world is draining the coffers from the sovereign mints and the Canadian mint where you guys are in Ottawa, they haven't had gold maple leaves to sell for weeks. And so the, look at the premiums on gold maple leaves right now. They're way over $100 by almost everyone in the country. Never was that way, ever. Um, so getting product, everyone's focusing on silver. Getting gold is really hard, really hard. I can't get gold buffaloes to save my life right now. And I'm one of only 27 US mint authorized resellers in the world. I'm high up on the food chain. I know all the distributors. I go right to the US mint. There is none. So you're feeling see the that happen. Yeah, to see that happen this early in the year is adding crystallization to mm -hmm. my belief that the biggest money in the world, the sophisticated investors, not the little guy, but the big one that sets the trend, they are positioning in, in mass and in spades ahead of what's coming coming next. So what Reddit group has done is to shine a light on this. And I hope that everyone out there continues to do their part to accumulate, whether they buy from me or not, I think it's making a difference. And you can see that on what's coming here on the 24th with the beginning of the March delivery, the commercial banks have to be really scared. And I think that if, if this trend continues, something that I never thought possible, that being the overrun, hey, Sorry, my dogs are barking. The overrun of the uh, Comex market is potential. It's possible. Andy, um, I think this is a perfect way to kind of segue to getting back to the things that are really important. Because I know that you're working 18 hours, a, uh, you know, a day. You've taken about one hour right now to really um, give us all the knowledge and the listeners an opportunity. But I think Nick and I would love to have you back. Absolutely. When, when silver hits probably a new all-time high, maybe, hopefully. And I want to hear some of those stories too. And, and we'll definitely talk about those stories because this is probably the, you know, I think this is the craziest time to really be 
you know, in the precious metal space. And uh, we, we, we want to thank you so much for, for, I appreciate it, brother. Very, very much. I do appreciate it. Uh, I would like any of your listeners out there uh, send an email to Andy at milesfranklin.com. I'll reply to it. You put, uh, put the title of, of this podcast in the subject line. I'll make sure they get the very finest price in North America. That's my word. Uh, for your Canadian listeners, we have worldwide exclusives with Brinks in Montreal, in mm. Toronto, and in Vancouver. We have the only fixed rate structure in North America based on the number of ounces that you store rather than the value. It is my mission singularly to get the word out and help people. Uh, I, I talk to people all day long. I, I'm, um, I'm not the, the CEO who sits in the ivory tower. I'm, I'm on the front lines all day, every day, I love talking to people. I will email them back personally. Or if I get overwhelmed, as I often do these days, pass it off to one of my brokers who I personally taught and am in contact with all the time. But it can start by sending an email directly to me. I will read them all. I will either respond myself personally or have one of my senior brokers do it immediately. And I'll make sure your listeners get the best price in North America while the product is, is still here. And I do appreciate being here and I'd like to continue to come back. Absolutely. And I love seeing, I love seeing um, younger people interested in this because it was one of my very, very biggest concerns for a very long time that the people that I sp speak to and have since I was your age have all been your grandparents age. Um, that's changing rapidly. And I love that. And I give credit and kudos to people, your generation, their, They've been given, they've been short-sailed, they've, they've been short-changed. Um, they're a whole heck of a lot smarter than, than a lot of us have ever given them credit for and industrious and coordinated. And uh, I hope that that continues because I think that you guys are onto something and you're doing a great job by getting the word out there. Um, look, the more things change, the more they do stay the same. Gold and silver aren't going anywhere. There may be new forms of, of wealth creation through cryptocurrencies and what have you, but everything comes full circle and um, take some of that profit mm -hmm. off the table. If you've made a fortune in cryptocurrency and put it in your pocket, one last thing and I'll let you run every year when before times were crazy, my family would go uh, on a trip with another family and uh, father of the other family is a good buddy of mine. And we would always end up in a casino when the kids were sleeping and the wives were in the hotel room and he and I would end up in a casino somehow, some way. And every single time, not only would he get me drunk to where I don't even hardly remember anything, but he would have a pile of chips in his pocket. And I said, how the hell did you do that? Every single time, how did you do that? And he finally said to me, every hand that I win, I take something off the table and I put a green chip in my pocket. And there's wisdom in that. Uh, nothing goes straight up. Do not be greedy. Take some money off the table. Take some of that profit off the table and put it in your pocket in the form of 5,000 year old wealth that is trading at half of its all time high from 1980 and um, put it away. Hope you never need to use it. If you do, you're damn glad you have it. If not, you pass it on to your kids someday because you know what? I was your age once uh, and you wake up one day and you're 50 like I am like, how the hell did that happen? But I still have virtually every ounce of gold and silver I've ever bought going back to when I was 19 years old. So thanks for the opportunity. I'd love to come back and uh, have your listeners reach out to me. I'll make sure it's a good experience and they'll get the best price in North America for doing so. 
course. Well, Andy, they always say that uh, business owners are the best storytellers. So we're very looking forward to our next uh, our next little episode with you. Thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. Uh, this was awesome. And uh, we'll be back next week, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Nick, any final words? Andy did a great job of saying everything had to be said. I'm going to let him keep the finishing. <laughs> it's all good, fellas. I'm sorry that I was late this morning, but Don't just know that I'll it. be happy to hear from you moving forward. And uh, anything that I, I can ever do for you, you reach out personally and uh, I'll make sure and have your back. And next time I'm up in Montreal, which used to be three times a year when we go do our audits at Brinks. And uh, as soon as they let uh, us Americans cross the border, I'd love to meet up with you guys. Of course, and, uh, 100%. Personally. Likewise. 100%. Andy, thanks right, so much. Yeah. Keep the hustle young and we'll see you soon. Sounds good, fellas. Take care. Thank you. Take Ciao. Care. Take care. You bet. See you guys.